Welcome to the Cult Hackers podcast, Stephen here. Just before we begin this week's discussion with our guest Joe, we wanted to let you know that this episode includes Joe talking briefly about her experience of sexual abuse as a child and also growing up in a purity culture. Joe also mentions distressing emotions, including thoughts about self-harm. Hello Cult Hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm her dad. I'm Stephen. I'm an organisational psychologist these days. I was raised in a high control group or cult and I left um, around 30 when you were born, Celine. So today we've got a really interesting guest. I'm really, really happy to welcome uh, author Joe Lloyd-Johnson to the podcast. Welcome, Joe. Thank you for having me. You're absolutely welcome. So, Joe, you're the author of a book called Silenced in Eden. Um, I would recommend all our listeners um, purchase a copy of this book. Um, I had the Kindle version because I wanted it quick. Um, so I, I read that and um, I think it's a wonderful book. It's uh, really well written and very um, there's some diff- tricky bits in it, I think, but also it's very easy to understand and, and you present the points incredibly clearly. So I, I think it's a, a really interesting book. Do you want to just give us a quick overview of what the book is about? Because that will give us an introduction to you and, and who you are, really, Joe. Yeah, perfect. Um, so I also was born into a high control group, um, a version of basic Christianity. Um and just under a shepherding discipleship movement, um, where very much that umbrella we all see the memes of now, where the pastor, the husband, the submissive wife, and the kids under the wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was born into that. Um, I, like Stephen, didn't leave until I was 30, which was all of six years ago. <laughs> um, while I was a child in this high control group, Um, I was sexually assaulted. uh, And a lot of times things like really any kind of painful experience, a lot of times in control groups, they minimize it because they don't want to expose any leadership. um, And we are told to forgive. And so the damage done to an individual kind of gets intertwined with the damage that controlling religion can do. Um, And so when I, when my husband and I started questioning beliefs at 30, uh, basic ones, like if there's a literal hell and why women have to be subservient to men, um, then I kind of stumbled onto like, Hey, when they announced I was healed and Jesus just magically healed me, maybe there's some damage here under my surface that I haven't dealt with. Um, so for me, deconstructing pulled up the roots of a lot of pain, a lot of um, survival mechanisms that I developed due to religious trauma and sexual trauma. Um, and so the book was me journaling, like how to survive <laughs> deconstructing. Mm. Um, and then once I had this very messy version of all the threads and me and my um, sister who works as my editor had to turn it into a book that other people could actually understand and read. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that's Silas Denedian. It's a story of trauma, a story of a mom 
waking up and being like, hey, maybe this is generational and we're harming our kids. And I don't really want to put my daughters through this or my sons, but specifically for me and uh, the hardships that I walk through, my daughters were like my beacons of hope that I can like, hey, maybe this messed me up, but let's try to minimize how much it messes them up. So, yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's so much there I want to... dig into a bit i mean first of all um the the title of the book's really interesting it's quite a resting silence in eden um maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you why you called it that yeah so as a woman in the church uh we uh, most people know that verse where it's like women must be silent right and as a woman you feel that pressure to like quiet yourself to shrink down to not have a voice um anybody who's been sexually assaulted there's also that level of like, we, we as a culture in general tend to re-victimize victims. So victims to uh, protect themselves tend to stay silent just because if they speak, they're going to just be victimized more. Mm-hmm. Um, so feeling silenced has been a weight I've held my whole life. Um, as a female in Christianity, I'm too loud. I'm too rambunctious. (laughs) So um, I've always felt like everyone's telling me, like, quiet down. Um, And then Eden, we all know the story story of Adam and Eve. At least I'm assuming most of your listeners would know the story of of Adam and Eve. And the idea of Adam and Eve as a literal place or a literal people, right? were were put into Eden, the garden, where they're going to have perfect relationship with God. Uh, And in my type type of Christianity, there was this emphasis of coming back to that perfect relationship and living a life on earth that was just like Eden, where God is with you and walking with you all day long. Um, So I that's my life. I lived silenced in what I was trying to produce of Eden. Yeah. This, um, uh, one of the things that I felt when I was reading the book was how, um, at first looking at it, you know, I'm a man, um, in a different group or being raised in a different group. Um, but I, it resonated so much, so much of what you said resonated with me, although obviously on the surface there, there seems a lot of differences, but, um, yeah. And, and, um, one of the things you said about that, um, so, so most of our listeners, I think will be familiar with, um, certainly if they're extra Jehovah's witnesses, they'll be familiar with the garden of Eden story and, um, the idea, you know, it's actually man that's created. It's, uh, the story is about man being created and basically woman comes along because man's a bit lonely really. Um, and so that's the, and that I think sets the scene for everything else that these type of fundamentalist groups then then do. And and one of the things that you talk about is this purity culture, um, and this relationship between men and women, and and how that's all framed. And and I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for me, this is what stem. This is what really creates all of the conditions that that ruins the lives of so many people. So um, what what. Do you, do you think that's right? What effect does this purity culture have and this submission culture have on, on women in particular, but actually uh, men as well? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't really speak to how it affects men, um, but I think you probably can, and you have probably have a lot of experiences of how the idea that your body is inherently bad 
So therefore bodily urges are bad um, and not just bad, like sinful worth being condemned for like you deserve pain because you're human. Cause the idea is that you deserve hell, which is torment forever. And then there's that dynamic of God made man uh, in the book. I say God made man and God made him in the image of God. Man asked for a companion. So God made woman for man. Man was made for God and woman was made for man. And that concept as a woman of like, okay, so God and man have this beautiful relationship and I'm an afterthought. And as an afterthought, my job is just to make man happy. So then if you dive into that with like sexuality, okay, so a man is being told this woman is here to aid me succeed in succeeding. So, and and this woman is the only outlet I have for sexuality. And once she becomes my wife, like whatever urges I have, I'm allowed to have and she just has to be a part of it right because it's all about me <laughs> she's the afterthought that's here to help me and help me be you know pure or or only have sex with her or only imagine even because we also demonize pornography so i can't even mm-hmm. think about anyone but this woman so the level of control like we are learning that sexuality has such a vast range um, but then in Christianity and in most high control groups, um, even high control groups that are like not Christian base, they tend to have this box of like, this is what sexuality looks like. And when you don't fit in that box, which most of us don't, you feel really guilty for not fitting in that box. Yeah. And you will hate all parts of yourself that don't fit in that box. Mm. So. As a woman, you, I mean, I, 36, I've been out of Christianity for about four years. And I think it's been the last two that like I I went through writing and and taking a hard look at what happened to me. But now I'm like, okay, who is this human, this flesh that is allowed to have wants and desires and pleasure? And what does she like? Because I wasn't, I never had that concept of like, I'm allowed to enjoy my body. So, and I, I, because I didn't believe I was allowed to enjoy my body, I'd never learned what my body wanted. So just the suppression. And I think that aspect of like not learning yourself, not knowing yourself is on both sides of the gender spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think that most people in high control groups, especially ones with purity movement, um, they are disconnected with their own sexuality. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, just sticking with the Garden of Eden um, story, which, you know, some some who are not ex-members of Christian groups might wonder why we're focusing on that. But it, it it's because we believed that that was literally what actually happened. You know, this was not an allegory. This was actually um, history. Um, and therefore we could learn so much about God's perfect arrangement. And as you describe it as, um, 
uh, really trying to reproduce what God intended in the first place in our sinful way as best we could. Um, but yeah, the, the story itself, um, and again, Eve comes, um, becomes the one who sort of created this situation, you know, it's Eve who takes the fruit. She then kind of convinces her husband to do it. So again, again, she's blamed for this, um, for this fall into sin. Um, yeah, I don't know whether you've got any comments on that. I think you allude to it in your book, I think. Yes, I definitely do. Um, yeah, the idea that she is the um, the weaker of the two, right? Because, and Satan, who's a real literal being <laughs> in this version of reality, um, he knows that she's weaker, so he goes to her. And the only way to get to the man, because again, you, the idea is that it's all about the man. So the way that Satan sees to get to the man is by tempting his love, his companion, uh, his wife. And then once he gets her to mess up, then she can mess, like she can come and tempt her husband. And so there is this idea that women are here on earth as in a godly way to support their husband, right? That's their like godly role. And then the opposite of that is that they're also this temptress harlot who's going to pull that man away from God. So in a lot of ways, as a female in this type of any kind of Abrahamic religion, you are either a whore or like pure, submissive, meek quiet. Those are your options. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and they, they really do make life black and white in mm. every aspect. So in your sexuality, they make it that black and white as well. Yeah. So I'd like to bring you in Celine here. Um, mm. obviously as, as a young woman who's never experienced, um, that sort of upbringing, I don't know what your observations are about that, or what your thoughts are about that. You know, it's something we've talked about on the mm. show before, obviously, <laughs> Yeah, it's not my own personal experience. I just knew I was grateful that it wasn't because I could, I was close enough to other people to see that were still being raised in that way or had been raised in that way to see that obviously I was very lucky. <laughs> um, so, you know, for instance, as we need to have this on a mug at some point, but uh, because I keep saying about the, I'm really grateful that I, you know, don't, my husband doesn't go off and have meetings with other men and I bring in cake and tea um you know <laughs> um like you know the the curtains don't get closed for men's discussions and you know that sort of thing and that I feel like an equal partner in our relationship um or something I'm very grateful for and I don't know if I don't, I don't know if yeah, everybody feel, um that's lucky enough to be in that position feels it because they've not necessarily always seen behind the other side of what could be um, but I try and always bang that drum, I guess, because um, for anybody that's not that's sort of got exposure to that of how lucky mm. it is to, I suppose not lucky, just it's, it should be. As say it, it is. should be that way, really, shouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it's, I, it's, I guess because I'm observing yeah. it and uh, mm. keenly aware that if you just made a different decision as my dad, um, mm. I wouldn't be necessarily living in, um, you know, an equal partnership. Um, also, yeah, I do remember asking. A relative once um why can't why can't women be elders 
because that was something I was confused about and I was told that it's because women are too caring and kind and that would be bad (laughs) for making the important hard decisions (laughs) right Um, because we can't be merciful and kind as a church right we (laughs) yeah gotta make hard bad decisions I guess (laughs) so yeah um that's I suppose yeah I kind of have a tertiary relationship with yeah seeing it and being grateful that yeah that's not the situation but just bewildered by it like because that's a conversation I had as a child and just finding that completely bewildering and like okay but yeah enough for it to stick with me at 26 and still remember the conversation (laughs) yeah so we left um when Celine was um a very small child but obviously we still had relatives and have relatives that are still in it and Mm um you know I've had sort of different levels of of closeness if you like but um but she's um Celine's been able to observe I suppose those differences so have Mm. have that ability to sort of see both things um sorry sorry yeah I was just gonna say as well the other thing is um have seen how different types of women experience that and it you know depending on personality like you said yourself feeling like you've always been quieted and told to be quiet and um how you know people I knew that were much louder and would have or did take the the lead in their relationship and that was seen as bad you know and people would anytime something bad happened it was because the woman was taking the lead in the relationship and if the man would just step up and do his thing and she would step down and stop taking his role everything would resolve and be fine um and obviously I find that incredibly annoying and yeah I guess passion filled (laughs) to create this podcast (laughs) Um, I think with that, like there are to start to realize like different people have different dynamics, right? Different relationships will have different dynamics. And I feel there is a truth to like when you watch ones that naturally the woman is a little louder or um, just more sure of her decisions or more comfortable speaking out and holding decisions that those dynamics usually are frowned upon or that the, the they're uncomfortable like the couple themselves are uncomfortable with the fact that that's the reality and they're always trying to like switch the dynamic that is not natural for them just as individuals um and that's something that I've started to realize that me and my husband kind of did um we started off best friends so there was no like power dynamic we were just buddies um, we would, I mean, really good friends. Like we would talk about, oh, this girl has a crush on you, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? Um, and then when it became romantic, it had this really awkward, sticky, like, oh, wait, well now I'm supposed to guard my heart and you're supposed to pursue me. So I can't tell you what I'm feeling. I need you to take the lead. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, instead of just us naturally continuing our flourishing friendship into a romance we both tried really hard to put ourselves in the pegs that we're supposed to be in and now you know we're 15 years almost 15 years into a marriage and now we're finally like hey I get to just do what's natural and you get to just do what's natural but sadly we have like 14 13 years of kind of resentment on both sides because we were both uncomfortably trying to play the role we were told by religion that we had to play. Um, so yeah, I definitely as a louder girl, 
um, who's totally comfortable, like making decisions and holding line and supporting, um, like, yeah, supporting others, but like being her own, right. Mm -hmm. As just naturally being that way, um, trying not to be that way, like trying to not be yourself and also the aspect of like shame and self-hatred that comes with just believing that that part of you is probably a bad part. It's probably sinful, probably satanic at some level. Um, like it's just such a, it just messes with your mind so intensely. Uh, and I do think there are women who are quieter naturally, who are comfortable like, oh yeah, I'll just take care of the kids or I enjoy not being um, in the spotlight. Spotlight scares me. They probably survive a little bit, a little bit easier. I think never being um, an equal affects all of us <laughs> and it's not healthy for any brain. Um, but I just think that the, maybe the weight of it is carried a little bit different when you're naturally as I am. Yeah, that, that's that's really well put. Actually, I think that's really really interesting. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I felt um, when I uh, when I left, it was a wonderful weight off my shoulders for me um, because I could now feel that actually, you know, we're in it together. It's it's a partnership, a proper partnership, and that felt so much nicer. Even though I was I was always fairly comfortable making decisions and so on, but it just felt much much nicer doing it together. So yeah, what a shame to make people do something that isn't natural. Right. And um, Celine, you had said that you naturally, um, as somebody not indoctrinated, you were like, why wouldn't women be on the elder board? Mm. And there's actually, there's actually a passage in my book where my husband does that. <laughs> so we, so in Christianity, there, um, there tends to be like two trains of thought. There's the one where women cannot be elders, cannot be pastors. Um, and then there's the other where women can be, but it's pairs. So instead of a woman being on staff, they may have a single woman on staff as like a children's something, but usually it's a husband and wife. And so like you're, you being married to a man in ministry is what allows you to be in ministry. Um, and so we, me and my husband were in churches that had women and men on their leadership and then when we moved to Hawaii, we were going to the Calvary Chapel. Calvary chapels tend to have really strict gender ideas. Ideas Only men are on the elder board. My husband's asked to be on the elder board. So he's an elder. Um, and at one point, we're talking, we're starting to deconstruct, but nobody knows. <laughs> We've given no hints to anybody. Um and the pastor's like, we were thinking like, maybe we should have elders have terms instead of just being an elder forever. So we're wondering like, does anybody want to think about stepping down so we can like turn this over? And so my husband was like, yep, right here. <laughs> I will, uh, I will step away. And then they're like, okay, well, do you want to nominate three people to take your place? So my husband goes, well, this woman is already running all the the children's ministry and this woman is doing a prayer ministry and this woman runs, I forget what she was running, um, some other thing. So there's three women in the church who are not elders, but actually running ministries. And so he nominates three women to take his place. And the men are like looking at it like, no, what the heck are you doing? And so they're like, oh, well, 
the third woman, her husband's already an elder. So like she already has a voice here. And the first woman you said, um, maybe, maybe we could talk about her husband and the other, the, the second, she's a divorcee. And so my husband said, well, what about her? Like she doesn't have any man to be here as her voice. Uh, and ultimately they pick the husband of his first nomination. And my husband said that in that meeting, he had never, like, these are people that we were friends with. We know we've been going to church with. He had been an elder for like two years. He said he has never been so disgusted by a group of men before. That they literally were like, well, she has a voice through her husband. She's not allowed to have a voice. She can whisper in this man's ear and hope that he cares about what she's saying or her plans or her, you know, whatever, and speaks for her. That removal of agency. Yes, absolutely. Well, and again, that like, it's this idea of a line where like God's on top pastor, husband, a woman can't jump up and be under the pastor. She can't lead. She can't whatever. Like your only voice is through someone else. And God forbid that person ends up being not a nice person. (laughs) And I look down and I see she had a knife right at my back. And of course, now I'm banging on the door and the RA comes running from the computer in the hallway and opens the door. And I sprinted three stairs at a time up to my room. Yeah, the culture of Bob Jones University is very much like other religious institutions. They created a shame structure. These structures are intended to keep people within the boundaries of what the group of the cult wants them to be in. I was followed a lot my freshman year, second semester, because I got what was called socialed. The RA, the resident assistant on my hall, would follow me around from classes. Being able to say that's Satan, being able to say something's controlling you in a negative way so that you have to then dismiss those drives and you have to dismiss your anger and the resentment, etc., is um, it's like tying someone's hand behind their back because you're not teaching people how to address it. Surviving Bob Jones University of Christian Cults is a thought-provoking podcast series that delves deeply into the history of Bob Jones University, the psychology of fundamentalism, the criteria for cults, and survivors' experiences The series is premiering August 23rd, 2023. Please spread the word and leave a positive review to help other listeners like you find the show. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by becoming a patron. You can support the podcast for just £1 or $1.50 and receive a variety of Patreon benefits as a thank you. Don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. Thank you for listening and now back to the podcast. So what, what sorts of consequences, let's move on to that, really. What are the consequences of this culture? What sort of things happen because of this culture? Yeah, um, 
I mean, there there's parts of like men and women that are just different in general and men don't always know that. Um, I was having a conversation last night with a, a group and I was, we were talking about stress responses and how women tend to freeze more often than men. Um, and it makes sense in general, women are smaller in general in a fight, a man's going to win. Um, so just your brain learns, oh, if I can't flee, if I can't fight, then I have to freeze. So women tend to freeze more often than men. Um, and I was explaining that to this, uh, you know, 30 something year old guy. And he's like, I've never experienced a freeze response. I didn't really know that a brain does that. And we were talking about how, like, if we all just have a little bit more understanding of each other, of what, how people are wired, then like you would, would be able to acknowledge like, oh, maybe I just caused this woman to freeze so now everything that I do beyond here is not being consented about or is not being even taken in. If you're in a discussion, like she's not there anymore because you just triggered her whole body to shut down. Um, and, and again, it's just because as in cultures like this, we tend to have all the important conversations while separating the sexes. <laughs> Like, I remember, you know, oh, we're going to talk about purity. Okay, guys all go over there and girls go all over here. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you talk about like children raising, like we talk to the women about everything, how to calm a crying baby, how uh, touch calms a baby, like all the, the, how to be a mom, how to be a parent. And we don't teach the dads anything except for like, here's a proper way to discipline, which usually is like actually not and like abusive, <laughs> but we have this idea again of the roles being so separate that like, as a man, you're allowed to discipline and be angry and be physical and be this as a woman, you have to submit and be quiet and loving and calm and nurture your child. And then not everybody fits in that very, uh, that gender role. And that very, like, on one side, right? Really intense either side. We're usually in the middle. Um, mm. But like my dad is the nurturer in that dynamic. Um, so it was also really confusing because he had to be the disciplinary. So then it felt like there was no real nurturer because he was like mm. nurturing you, but then spanking you, but then nurturing you again. Mm. <laughs> um, instead of just being like, okay, naturally, this is how he is. And so you can be that way. And let's teach every individual how to regulate a child or how to regulate themselves or how every human's wired so that if, so that they can have understanding if they're not the same exact way as this other person. Yeah. And in, in your book, you, um, this, I think this is one of the most interesting bits for me that struck me I found it quite emotional actually was that your your dad's so you, you you're able to look at your mum and dad's relationship of course and that that allows you to think about what you want for your relationship once you start to realize that um you don't have to do this anymore you know you can actually choose for yourself how you're going to raise your own children so you've got we've got this this view you, you're able to look at, at your own parents and think about your own parenting i think that's really interesting and and the 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 
um, the part where you talk about your father and and his um, disciplining of of you and your sisters um, and the the sort of corporal punishment as we'd call it. Um, um, I think that's it's really upsetting, you know, and um, that I think and I I remember as a young father um being taught that you know spare the rods and you know you spoil the child that sort of thing um and it was absolutely accepted in the kingdom hall that you'd you'd spank children if they were misbehaving sitting there for two hours you know uh, with nothing to do just listening to men drone on for two hours of course children are going to be a bit fed up and fractious you know Mm -hmm. and so you'd, you'd often hear parents taking the kids out to the small room and sometimes you'd hear the smack and um, sometimes, you know, they'd come back crying. And this was, you know, this was what I was expected to do and my wife was expected to do. And I think um, you talk about that quite a lot. Um, and obviously that yeah. affects you. Yeah. As a young parent, like, and I, I do mention in the book, like what you're raised in is normal, right? Mm. So like you guys created for Celine a normal where she's an equal, Um, but then that may not have been your wife's experience growing up. Um, so you think that what the world around you is normal Mm. and in high control groups, they tend to make it so you never, ever see outside of their normal, no matter how old you get. Um, but for people who have experienced outside world, you, and for me, like that was kind of the pivotal point was I took, um, my kids to the library. My daughter started being at the age of reading. And um, in the first chapter, you'll learn that education wasn't something that was important to me. For my parents, it wasn't important for me to be educated, um, which was something that was really hard for me. So as soon as my daughter could look at a book, (laughs) I'm like, we're going to the library every week and I'm going to read to you because you're going to know how to read. And so one time I'm at the library looking at kids' books and I pick up some memoir and I start reading uh, real life stories. Like I, I never read regularly because reading's always been really hard for me. And I started reading a book every three months, and then that turned into like a book every month. <laughs> um, and it was that, hey, this is normal for this person. I'm reading someone else's normal, and so maybe the normal, the very limited normal that I grew up with, isn't all that normal. <laughs> isn't all that healthy. And so growing up, normal was to spank your child. Normal was to tell your child that they're bad and that that this is like beating it out of them and that I'm training them to be good. Um, Normal is telling them that like they have evil parts of them that they have to ignore. Uh, So when my husband and I had our daughter and she came of an age where they could like kind of start to understand punishment or taking things away. Um, We struggled because we were told to spank and it never felt right. We were, we did spank our, our oldest. Um, And she's a very uh, sensitive child. And sadly, I also uh, did cry it out method, which uh, a baby cannot regulate. I did not know this, but the idea of cry it out is that they will learn to self-soothe. They don't tell you is that children at infants do not have the capacities to self-soothe. They don't know how to calm their heart. That's why you put them on their chest so they can beat along with yours. They don't know how to calm their breathing. That's why you put them on their chest and they feel your 
lungs raise and their lungs will respond by doing the same thing. They'll reg- their bodies will learn to regulate by your body showing them. But when you let them cry it out, you literally put them in a dark room and say, like, figure, figure it out. <laughs> um, so at two, my daughter didn't know how to calm herself. So we'd spank her and then she would start having these almost breathing fits where she couldn't calm her breathing down. Uh, you know, I'm giving my two-year-old anxiety because I am trained that if she does something bad, I have to hit her. And my husband and I would then have to like literally there were times after she got spanked where I would be holding her for like almost an hour before she could finally like calm down. And usually then she's so exhausted. She's like asleep on me. And I'm like, this doesn't seem like the best way (laughs) to be training her. I feel like we're just beating her and Mm. like, I don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. There's got to be something else here. And it was really hard because there's a part in the book where I'm being judged by uh, my mother specifically for not disciplining and I'm going to have spoiled children And now I'm like, no, I'm just going to have kids who know how to regulate because I'm 30 and I'm still figuring out how to regulate because I wasn't shown at two. Like, hey, when you get upset, you calm down, then you go to the person, you own up that you messed up and you apologize. And then you try to calm them if you hurt them. Like, hey, isn't um that so much better? Yeah, and you 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 give a lovely, I think, some really ex- good examples of that in in your book, and you we see how you um, uh, you you deal with something that's actually quite distressing and quite worrying around um, some inappropriate behaviour with with uh, one of your your daughter's friends, but oh, yes. but the way that you handle that is is just completely different to the panic and the. Um, because of the purity culture, I suppose that it was around, but you know, that, that had happened with your experience. And I think that was, uh, that was very interesting. I don't know whether you can talk to that at all. Yeah. So like, you know, my daughter's 10, um, every kid is so different. So right now I have my uh, second daughter is also 10 now. So my oldest, when she was like nine and a half, 10, she was already curious, like how are babies made? Um, my husband and I get pregnant in 2020 and it's not a planned pregnancy. (laughs) And so her little brain goes, wait, how did you get pregnant? If you weren't trying to make a baby, like I thought sex was to make a child. Cause at that point we had had a little bit of a conversation of birds and the bees. And it was very much like, yeah, sex, a a man and a woman have sex to make a baby. Not all she got of it. Um, And so here I am. I made a baby and I wasn't wanting to make a baby. <laughs> so she, her little brain's like, hold on, then you're having sex and it's not to make a baby. So why are you having sex? And she like legitimately asked me that. Wow. So that led, that led into a very honest conversation of like, well, sex can be a way to express care and love. So especially married couples, like they don't just do it to make babies. Um, and the the thing I was very like mindful of is this isn't a one conversation and done. It's uh, every stage she's going to have more questions. She's going to be 13 soon. Like I'm sure there's another conversation coming. And so at one point at that around then I had that conversation of like, well, do you want more detailed analogy of like what sex 
looks like? And she was like, yeah, can you tell me everything? <laughs> and her, her sister, her younger sister wasn't really at an age where she even mm-hmm. wanted to know anything. Right. Um, so we do have this, this situation where a friend kind of pushes for them to have their dolls have sex. And it happened with the younger. And so the oldest had had the sex talk. We had had a very, I told her like, you're too young to talk to your friends about this. I'm always open for a conversation. When you get older, there will be times where you'll be talking to your friends. But right now, your friends don't know the right answers. (laughs) Um, So come to me, don't talk to your friends. And so here she is. She found out that her friend was talking to her sister and being the eldest and wearing that with a badge of honor, she's the protector of her siblings, right? Um, And so she made it, she comes in freaking out, makes it this very big deal, um, which it, it was because it was inappropriate to try to encourage uh, for the friend to be manipulating. Like, I want you to do play this way. Why won't you? It, it became coercive. Anyways, during that process, I tried to stay calm. I tried to gather as much information as I could. And I tried to allow both children to uh, express whatever confusion they had to learn from the experience and then to make their own decisions on like how to move next. Um, and at the end of all of that, my eldest, I asked her, I was like, well, what do you want to do now with this friend? And she was like, well, it doesn't seem like she has a healthy relationship with, like she doesn't know how to have healthy relationships because she has shown signs of manipulation. So I don't, I don't think I should be her friend if she doesn't know how to like be a good friend. And I was so in that moment, I was like patting myself on the back, like doing internal cheerleading, like, yes, I did it. I know how to be a good parent. (laughs) And that's right. I thought it, I thought it was sounded um, so well done. It it really did. And that contrast to this obsession and fetishization of sex that these purity religions have you know it's it's a weird thing that um the 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 very thing that you're supposed to be afraid of afraid of and um avoid is the thing they keep talking about and are so obsessed about um and i think you know that's a good example of 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 how to handle that sort of situation. I mean, obviously everybody has to make their own decisions about what to do, but for me, that, that sounded like a, a really brilliant way of, of handling a, and actually quite a difficult situation. Um, Celine, I've, I've hogged the conversation. Um, what would you like to ask um, Joe? I suppose uh, I, something I've brought earlier when you sort of mentioned um, with writing the books or talking about a way of going through the, the leaving experience and like the difficulties of that, I think just to sort of highlight what a valuable resource and I guess angle to take as like the process of um important to highlight that it is difficult to leave and, and navigating all of that and not just the difficulties of being in it is like a multi-step right. thing isn't it it's not just the when you're in there's all these things it's just the process of leaving itself not even disentangling all of that um it's a massive huge thing in itself um did you find writing the book was helpful in that kind of process yeah, I think that writing the book helped me to untangle things um, mm-hmm. and to sit with my own like painful past. But the process of um, leaving a life that was, I don't think writing really helped that. I think for me, it was time. 
Um, and there was a lot of like grieving there. It takes relationships. There are relationships that will be lost or will be tainted or people that you love and that looked up to you who will now see you as an enemy. I, especially as being a girl, but also just, I am very nurturing and loving and kind. So I was a people pleaser. I still love encouraging people and supporting people. That is part of me. Um, I've just learned to stop only like giving myself (laughs) and being just whatever they want from me versus supporting them if I'm capable in the version of who I am today. But as a people pleaser, like having people not be pleased with me because I was starting to question things uh, really, really hard. I think that if my husband wasn't on the journey of leaving as well, I don't know if I would have left. I probably would have panicked and been so afraid of all the relationships that I had spent time building uh, that were now being torn apart. I think I would have probably just caved and ignored my true self and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, there's a part of me that's like, I may have had a mental breakdown <laughs> if my husband wasn't leaving with me. And I know plenty of couples that one starts to deconstruct, one starts to see flaws and want to leave, but the other one is clinging so mm-hmm. tightly. Um, and a lot of times the person who wants to leave will just hide all of their desires to leave and kind of live this double life of like, sure, I'll lead prayer <laughs> for a dinner and not be true to like, Hey, this doesn't fit me anymore. And I think maybe it's damaging. Uh, and that's hard because then they allow their kids to, you know, they allow the next generation to be raised in that, um, control culture aware that again, believes that you're innately sinful, innately bad. I don't think that's healthy for a brain to think that I am a bad I know for me, like it's really easy to jump to self-harm and really unhealthy mental places because I was trained that I am bad. So Mm. hurting myself doesn't seem that crazy when growing up, I was being hurt by a loving parent because I'm bad. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it breeds being in can breed mental illness, but leaving. (laughs) So, so here you've cultivated these individuals with limited outside experiences, believing that this is normal and then probably harmed them mentally. So they have these other complications. And then those people are going to try to get out and they've only heard that the secular world is scary, is, uh, you know, abusive men. Uh, So if you have a girl who was sexually abused in, they assume that everybody outside of it is these abusive, sex-crazed, harmful individuals. Um, So leaving can be, a lot of people don't leave. It is a lot. It is a lot to stand firm and say, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to lose possibly my family. I'm going to lose all the community I know. I'm also going to let go of all my beliefs and have nothing but an interner knowing that this is wrong. Like there's, Mm -hmm. they have to form new beliefs out of the scraps, which is really scary. (laughs) Uh, And how did you manage that, Joe? Are you you still on that journey or what what did you sort of do with that? Yeah, I think I'm at the rebuilding of me. Uh, I now I'm in therapy 
my husband and I are actually in couples therapy as well. So a whole lot of therapy going on here. <laughs> um, I'm an artist. So art is also a therapy that I do often. Um, I'm writing a second book. I'm in a stage of like, I have demoed my religion, right? Like I came in with a demolisher and knocked the building down. <laughs> um, but now I'm like with a shovel being like, Joanna's in here somewhere. <laughs> like <laughs> Puffing and puffing being like somewhere down here, there is truth that is me. Uh, and trying to um, find the little bits of real me in the rebel um, and build something new. I'm definitely still in the middle of that. I think it takes a lot of time. Um, and I've heard people say like, don't write a book until you're a decade away from it. For me, I wanted to write the experience. And so right now I am writing a second, uh, possibly like a two part. So like two, two books. Um, I do like the size of the book. I like it being small because it's a lot. Uh, the topic itself is a lot. So something you can read and be like, okay, that was great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's um, been enough rules, write it when you're ready to. <laughs> yes, write it when you're ready. But also for me, I think a lot of times we uh, as a culture like to look at things in head, in knowledge. Um, and sure, if you want to understand how people get brainwashed and understand how they manipulated you, that would probably take years of study. My book wanted to explain the raw human experience. And so to me, it made sense to write it while I was in the middle of it. Like this is how hurtful it is to look back at. I spanked my daughter and why the heck would I do that and still feel that and write down in the moment of like, my daughter just had this situation with a neighbor and this literally just happened. And I'm figuring out how to navigate it because I grew up and we never talked about sex. Mm -hmm. so I have no idea how to talk to my kid about sex. And this is me trying and Hey, I actually worked, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh. But anyways, yes, I'm definitely very much still rebuilding my life. Um, and there are days that it feels like weight, like a weight that it's really hard. Um, I'm learning that the programming of being submissive uh, or um, the trauma responses that I have are so ingrained and so intense and I'm having to like fight them and then also just acknowledge when like oh I did all of this I don't really want to do all of that but I was told as a woman I'm supposed to so when my husband asked hey can we do this I just complied versus being like hey I don't want to do that today or hi hey, I don't have the energy to make dinner you can make dinner tonight like the little things really yeah. do matter um, we literally like a month ago, we came up with like, Hey, I'm going to have nights. I'm going to do dinner these nights. You're going to do dinner these nights mm -hmm. because we want, like, it is an active, um, decision to not play the roles we were told we had to play mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to start like balancing the load <laughs> and being allowed to like, Hey, I am having an off day. Can you do dinner? Even though I'm supposed to, or I'll take out the trash. I don't really care. Like, you know what I mean? Like these yeah. little things that you do without thought because culture or upbringing tells you and being allowed to start questioning them. I think that that's something that like people who weren't raised in a cult, um, but were raised just in a culture that does tend, to, we pay women less. We victimize victims. We, like, there are things in our culture <clears throat> and it is possibly because we were 
Western society was started under Roman Catholic crap. And so <laughs> it's seeped into all of our, um, like, you know, the ground that we all stand on. Uh, but yeah, I think everybody can have moments where they start to question and look at how it's ingrained into your thinking. Um, blanking on her book right now, but there's a book where she talked about like how she would tell her daughters like, oh yeah, you, you can be uh, an entrepreneur. You can be a um, business owner. You can be a CEO. She's telling her daughters this because culture tends to show men as CEOs and men mm. as entrepreneurs. And then at one point she realizes, wait, I didn't tell my son he can be an artist. I didn't tell my son he can be a musician. I didn't tell my son... Right. Because in we do have that very like feminine roles, men roles. <laughs> um, there's this meme going around where like it shows a dad dropping off kids to school and it's like, oh, what a good father. And then it shows a mom dropping off kids and they're just like, that's what she's supposed to do. Yes, yeah. Right. <laughs> no, it's it's a very good point. And there's um there's this quite a bit of talk around this. Um Again, I'm forgetting the name of, of the author who's talked about this, but um, but yeah, it's it's actually not doing men any favors. The fact that we're not um, introducing these options to boys, um, so yeah, it's great that women are being young women are doing degrees in STEM subjects, you know, and that's brilliant, um, and they're they're finally able to develop in any direction they want to um i guess there's differences of opinion how how much of equality there is there but um the, the the data seems to be that women young women are doing much better at university than men but the question is um what about the men you know are they being encouraged to go into areas that actually they might like to you know areas of care and um, arts and um, other things like that so yeah why why are we not um leveling it on both ends if you like so yeah i think right. that's, a, that's a very interesting question but whether it's because of the romans or because of our abrahamic um <laughs> religious conditioning I, you know who knows um, a historian probably would better help us with that but yeah it's a great question um there is this book i read recently um called civilized to death and it talks about agriculture and how you know marriage came out of the oh, we have land now. And so we need to, because we're owning instead of like mm. hunter gatherers that just mm. wander and gather. Um, and so now that we're taking ownership of earth <laughs> and we need to pass that down. So now you, whoever has my offspring matters, right? Because before it wasn't really a thing. And, we, and that's been going on for so long that we don't really think about like, how did we get to owning land? How did we get to marriage? How did marriage develop? Because again, we were, anybody with an Abrahamic background were told that marriage started in the very beginning, day one, God made earth, God made man and woman, and he brought them together. And that was kind of like a marriage ceremony, guys, they're married. Right. <laughs> um, verse like, no, look at, look at history, right? And hunter gatherers, they didn't really have marriage ceremonies. Colonizers showed them what a marriage was. And, and in a lot of ways, marriage was ownership was I own this woman. She will birth me children. And then those children that I know are my bloodline are allowed to have the land. And, and then we're going to give the land to the next male and whatever. Right. 
Um, so symbolized to death reading that book and being like, oh, this is all like, <laughs> this is all control. And our culture itself is not maybe the truest form of human, right? If we actually evolved evolution, really taboo thing. <laughs> Growing up, evolution was like, no, no. Absolutely. Um, I remember evolution being taught in, I think it was sixth grade. And my dad tried to get me out of going. Mm-hmm. So he they had gotten me out of the sex ed. So he's like, oh, I'll just go and tell him. Like I want her to sit yeah. out of um, I want her to sit out of evolution class. <laughs> and the elementary school is like, um, no. So then my dad sat me down and was like, So they're gonna teach you this, and it is a theory. This is only a theory. There's no real proof. This is just a you know, man, whatever, man's idea of. Mm-hmm. I had yeah. that talk. See, didn't you have your um, room, your, like, um, like some script on the table for? Was this you? Uh, like I you had know. a leaflet with you or something like a J. Oh, well, I took it in. Yeah, we yeah. had to take things in, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, so it's what my dad did instead of sending me with leaflets, which um, I, I guess I'm thankful now, now knowing that that could have been the option. <laughs> 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 on the desk showing everyone here's the truth guys is this one um no so instead of humiliating me (laughs) um his way to get it to show me the other right was that i would get home from school and he had creationist young earth videos that now after a day of school i get to sit down and watch some guy explain to me how the bones that they found are faked or how um, I forget like big bang theory is disproving big bang theory. Cause whatever, um, obviously, <laughs> obviously they weren't very memorable. Uh, all I know is that like, I had to sit at a screen where an old man in the eighties made science projects and told you that like, they're wrong. Um, so that was my dad's work around it. <laughs> Bless his heart. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, that was one of the things that really, um, led me to leave. Um, it was the first thing that had been on my mind for so long. It just, the, the whole biblical account of Adam and Eve and, uh, and then the flood and, and then you contrast that with all kids love dinosaurs, you know, it's so exciting dinosaurs and, um, actually, Jehovah's Witnesses didn't really try to explain that. That was just a mystery that we weren't going to get into. No, I know, I know some, some I talk about it. didn't even touch it. it. No. no. But we, I remember watching we, we dinosaurs when we started. It's a nice idea, isn't it? Someone said that. Like, it's a nice idea, isn't it? And I was like, so I was of the camp where they literally, there's like two verses in the Bible where they talk about some sort of creature. Hmm. I I don't know them. Lathiathan, um, but, is it? But, yeah. But my, so we were under the idea, yeah, dinosaurs are in the Bible. They talk about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are real. And then I never put that to to the thought of like, okay, wait. So then if God said that all the animals go in the ark, what did the dinosaurs get in the ark? No, they clearly did something really wrong. Had to be drowned. Yeah, they they got drowned with all of the other humans. I think that's it. I think the general opinion was um, that it's something to do with that, that they died um, during the flood. Um, but yeah, we didn't have the, the wacky idea that Satan was burying dinosaur bones, you know, that I know some groups do. I have heard that. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> These bones are, are like Satan trying to make a like lie. Right. Yeah. Um, I, 
I did have my dad definitely believed that the scientists were lying and that the bones weren't like they, they don't actually match and they're just creating out of like bones that they're finding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So where are you now in terms of your, uh, if you don't mind me asking, you don't have to answer this question, but in, um, I, I'm an atheist uh, or a, a certainly an agnostic. Um, but I, you know, we do talk to people who still have a belief in God and even the Bible. So where, where are you on this, uh, this journey currently? Yeah. So while I was writing the book, I was definitely deconstructing uh, kind of like agnostic while interviewing and doing things like this. I've talked to a lot of atheists and learning, like I was ingrained that atheists only believed in science. They had no spirituality. They were a nihilist, like we are matter and material and only, um, and so I'm not that. <laughs> the idea, the version of atheist that I was told, the really scary, only this, again, everything's very black and white, the very strict type of atheist. I'm not that, but I would call myself an atheist now, maybe a, a humanist. I believe yeah. that I believe in spirit. I believe in um, that we all have some sort of knowing, some sort of connect thing that we're all connected. And I mean, I grew up in a charismatic, um, not really Pentecostal, but, you know, speaking in tongues, uh -huh. miracles, emotional uh, emotions, mm -hmm. um, and have had spiritual experiences inside of that. Um, so I can't negate like some level of whether it be energy that, that your energy picks up on someone's energy. I've just experienced too much to not acknowledge something there. Those experiences. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I hold to the fact that there are, there is something more than just physical matter. I, the part of Christianity that I would like to redeem for myself is just that helping people that like being able to heal, like, okay, I was told God can heal. Well, what if I can heal by sharing my experience and that person can feel less alone? And what if that's a level of healing? What if I can heal by sitting in a room and allowing them to just feel seen in that moment? What if I can heal by not hurting my kids and teaching them how to regulate and if we all learned how to raise kids, calming ourselves before calming them, we'd have a lot better generation, a couple generations here. We'll be much better humans. Um, yeah. So, absolutely. yeah. That's, so that's, that's me right now. I, I'm not opposed to being called an atheist. I'm definitely very spiritual. I believe in interconnection. I believe in what matters is our lived experience and sharing it. And your uh, that lovely um, sort of description of, of of what you can do it comes out that's a kind of nice place to I guess to bring our conversation to to a close in a way because that in, in your book you talk about that and you, you tell us um, about your your grandma your grandmother and um, how in a way that's like the the revelation that you have to use a slightly biblical term um this is this is the revelation it's that you know just being there for somebody else bringing some light into somebody else's life can actually make such a difference and you know that that is almost like a spiritual experience in itself yeah and that experience happened while i was agnostic probably more of an atheist mm -hmm. and i think that that experience of that i share in in that chapter um was the one that i was like oh without 
God, I can still experience what I liked about Christianity. Yeah. So I, I would recommend people, so we won't tell them any more about that. So they need mm-hmm. to, people need to buy your book um, to find out about all of that. I uh, just want to say then, thank you so much, Joe, for uh, being on the podcast today. It's been absolutely wonderful. Really enjoyed it and uh, totally recommend people uh, get your book. It's called Silenced in Eden. Um, I, accessed it, I accessed it through Amazon, I think. So um, it's easy to get. Uh, Joe, we'll thank you for coming on. We will. We'll put yes. a link in the show notes. Uh, Joe, <laughs> Lloyd Johnson, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me.